we're in the very last two verses of 1 John. Uh, we do not have children's church this morning because we have communion and we want our children to be uh, in the service with, with us, worshiping with us and uh, seeing the elements. It's important for them to be with us. Uh, if you do have a child that's of the school age, uh, we have these blue bags um, that you can pick up and it's a busy bag, so there's, lots of, there's some activities for them to fill out uh, during the sermon as well. So 1 John chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Well, congratulations, everybody. We've made it through 1 John. This is, this is the final sermon in 1 John. And then we will do one sermon in 2 John and one sermon in 3 John. We started 1 John a while ago, earlier this year. If you are new to our church, we typically preach through uh, whole books of the Bible and just take it verse by verse and, and passage by passage. Um, that, that way we are getting the full counsel of God's Word. Every word that is written in the Bible is, is written for our edification to equip us as believers. And so we want to, to read it and we want to hear it preached as well. So we're in 1 John chapter 5 and we're looking at verses 20, verses 20 and 21. So if you're able, please stand as we hear God's word. This is God's holy word. <clears throat> and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we've been preaching through this letter, one of the, the main ideas and themes is that this is a word from a spiritual father in the faith to his children. Remember the very last verse of what I just read. Children, little children, really. Technia in the Greek. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And just as a way to sort of jump right into application, some, uh, one way to really apply this is that mothers and fathers especially, we need to be passing the faith on to our children. We need to be explaining God's word to them talking about how important it is, encouraging them in the faith, and writing to them even. If, they don't, if, if, our, if, our, if we have college students that are away, write to them. Uh, I know two godly men in my life who often will write letters to younger uh, men and women, uh, nephews, cousins, children, grandchildren, write them letters uh, and that have are filled with God's truth to encourage them uh, in the faith. And so we must pass the, the faith on to the next generation. That's what John has been doing. Right? He, is, he has been encouraging this young church. They, are, they have been, they've gone through a, a difficult time. They've had a group uh, teach false doctrine in the church and then separate from the church and try to pull people away from the true gospel that Jesus is the Son of God. They've been trying to pull them away. And he's there to encourage them. He's there to write to them, to reassure them. And this letter is gospel-saturated, it's grace-saturated, it's Christ-saturated. It, it's all pointing to Jesus, as you see just in the last two verses, that it's all pointing to Jesus as the truth, as the Son of God. 
Everything in 1 John can be summed up in the truth that Jesus is the Son of God, the true God who's come in the flesh. And He's come to give us true understanding, true knowledge, true intimate relationship and union with the God of the universe. And there's a doctrine, a very important doctrine called the doctrine of union with Christ. And it teaches us that if you are deeply committed to knowing Christ, you'll be deeply committed to becoming like Him. And that the Holy Spirit will make you like God, like Christ, by, because you're united to Him. And if you're linked to Him by faith, you'll become like Him by the power of the Holy Spirit. And John's final commandment and warning is equally true. If you worship idols, you'll be united to them and become like them. And why does John warn us of idols at the end of this letter? He hasn't mentioned the word idols in the entire letter. So many people have tried to figure out why, what is he talking about? Is it literal idols? Because, you know, they lived in the day where people did worship idols, uh, wooden idols. They would go to certain temples and worship idols. Or is he talking about idolatry in general, that, that idolatry ultimately is the root of sin? Where sin is present, idol worship is the foundation. Idolatry is the root of all sin. You cannot unite yourselves to Jesus and to idols. That's what he's telling us. One of them has to win out completely. Jesus himself said, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God in money. And yet money is just one idol among many. It just so happens to be a timeless idol that grabs hold of every generation. And this letter has also been about assurance. John has been reminding and assuring us of what we know. If you take this section from verse 13 to verse 21, he says the phrase, we know, seven times. He is repeating. One way of John's writing is he likes to repeat things. That's what he likes to emphasize. He repeats them. We know is repeated in our passage. He wants to remind us of the knowledge that we have in Christ in contrast to the knowledge which idols provide. So the main idea this morning is that because Jesus has come to renew our minds, to commune with sinners, and to reveal himself to the world, we as his children, right, in response to that good news, must keep ourselves from idols. So there are three main truths that what Jesus has done for us, and then we're going to work each, each through you know, those three points, that Jesus renews our minds, that he communes with sinners, and that he reveals himself to the world. And our response is John's command that we should keep ourselves from idols. Well, let's jump back into that question, and as we look at the first idea that Jesus renews our minds, about assurance. Where is assurance of salvation found? An author, Robert Law, writes, With John, the grounds of assurance are ethical, not emotional, objective, not subjective, plain and tangible, not microscopic and elusive. See, one of the themes of this letter is that John is trying to teach against a a false gospel we call Gnosticism, which means that basically you have to have this secret knowledge if you really want to be saved. You have to understand Jesus in a particular way that 
that really only a few people know, and you have to go through certain rites and beliefs that take you there. And it's not really widely known. He's saying, no. You have assurance of salvation not based on something elusive and mysterious, but the gospel is sure and plain and objective, and you can see it. And as Robert Law writes, he says, those assurances are really three, three main ones as you look through 1 John. Belief, righteousness, and love. By his belief in Christ, his keeping God's commandments, and his love to the brethren, a Christian man is recognized and recognizes himself as begotten of God. So those are the three really main themes we see for assurance that you need to believe in Jesus, that, that what he's done is true and, and who he is is true. Then you need to keep the commandments of God and then love your brothers and sisters. If someone were to come to me this week and come into my office and want to have a meeting and, and they told me they were unsure of their salvation, they didn't know if they were saved, what I would do is I would take them to 1 John and I would ask them three questions. Do you believe in Christ? Do you believe that he is true? That he is, he is God? And everything that he did is for you. Do you believe that? Secondly, are you trying to keep his commandments? Is there some righteousness? Is there a desire to obey? Do you have that in you? Do you see that in your life? And then thirdly, do you love other brothers and sisters in Christ? Is there a love that you have? Not, I'm not saying you do it perfectly. I'm not saying you obey perfectly. But do you have a, a, a positive love for your brothers and sisters in Christ? If, if there's something there, then you can have assurance. That's what John is, is telling us. Commentator Douglas O'Donnell says, John wants us to be assured of our faith. He desires to develop in us a deeper understanding and appreciation of our everlasting relationship with Jesus. So again, thinking about those three ideas, belief in Christ, where do we see that in this letter? 1 John 2, verse 23 and 24, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. If you confess, you have the Father, if you believe. Uh, in 1 John four fifteen, whoever confesses, believes that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And then in John, 1 John 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe, in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. See, belief and knowing. Belief in Christ and knowing you have eternal life. How about righteousness? Where do we see righteousness at play for assurance? Look at chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So if you're trying to do good works, if you are obeying God's commandments, you can be sure that that is the, the work of God in you. These past uh, two weeks, we've been potty training Holden. He's our two-year-old. And as you know, potty training can be stressful for the parent as well as for the child. And it's, it, you know, he's running around half-naked in our house and having accidents on the floor and the carpet, and it's not, it's not fun. We've, this is our third go-around with a kid. Um, but one thing we try to do every time that he successfully goes on the potty 
is we celebrate with him. And we all sort of sing this song. Um, I forget what it is. It's something, it's just chanting his name. He's like, Holden did it, right? We, we sort of form almost like a conga line, right? As we sort of sing and dance. And then we head over to the kitchen and we grab an M&M. And he gets an M&M. And of course, his brother and his sister get an M&M too uh, because they are just a part of the family. And we celebrate and we say, Holden, you did it. Absolutely, that's great. Because he's learning. He's growing in righteousness in that sense, in potty training. But, and this is speculation, but I think whenever a believer, young believer or any believer, does something that's good, does something that's righteous, I believe there's, there's sort of a party that goes on in heaven with the angels. And they, and they celebrate the fact that, that a believer is doing something good by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we are trying to, to be righteous, that we're trying to obey God's commands. And every little bit we do is celebrated by God and the angels in heaven that we celebrate. Thirdly, it's that love toward believers. Another, another sign of assurance is that you have love toward believers. 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So another aspect of knowing that you are born again is that you have love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. You may not like your brothers and sisters in Christ. We've talked about that weeks ago. But you love them. You love them. You want them to grow. You want them to be loved and feel loved. And, and another point on that, you may have, like, what does passion and zeal for God look like? If you are passionate about God, if you are zealous for his glory, what does that tangibly look like? So if you're passionate and zealous for God and you see someone who is on the ground, injured, hurt, and in tons of pain, and you come up to them and you just say, isn't God glorious? Isn't he awesome? God's so good. And then you just go on your way. Just like the parable of the uh, the Good Samaritan. right? The priest and the Levite, they see the man in trouble. They don't help him. But what does passion and glory for God look like? Tangible acts of love to others. Right? If you want to glorify God, if you are in love with God, you will help your brother and sister in love. And all of these things, all of these signs, belief and righteousness and love, are all a part of the work of the Holy Spirit for your assurance. He says in 1 John 3.24, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he's given to us. That as a believer you're going to grow in inner peace and confidence that you are saved. And that's the Holy Spirit at work in you. And that's going to grow. It doesn't happen immediately. You may struggle with your own assurance, your entire Christian walk, but those moments where you feel strongest in your assurance and you have peace, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And you see that this this knowledge, this uh, being renewed in our minds, it's not just to have knowledge, but it's to have a personal relationship with God. Look again at verse 20 in our passage. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true. So, so we are to know Him who is true. Right? We're to know a person. We're to, to know God. One of the ways this can play out is, is when we come to worship, just like right now. When we come to worship, what is our mindset? 
Are we coming just to get an information download? Or are you coming to actually meet with God and commune with Him? A fellow PCA pastor, Jason Halopoulos, says, When we gather with God's people on Sunday morning for holy worship, it is holy worship because He is meeting with us. The great promise of the scriptures that I will be your God and you will be my people is being realized in a special and glorious way when we gather for worship. As Israel worshiped the living God at the tabernacle and the temple when he descended upon them in the cloud, so we enjoy him in the company of his saints by the indwelling spirit and the truth of his word. All looking forward to the day when this promise of him being our God and we being his people is fully consummated in the heavens, new heavens and new earth when he makes his home in the midst of us. Heaven is one continual meeting and dwelling with God. Our corporate worship is but a type of that glorious heavenly meeting that awaits us. It is but an appetizer for the full banquet of God dwelling in the midst of his people forever. This one idea can change how we worship. It rightly moves our petty concerns to the side. It takes our focus off of ourselves and directs it to the Lord. It makes worship more about truth than a gimmick. It moves us from wanting to leave with something more and rather focused upon what we have already received and shall enjoy someday. Worship becomes less about being an information download and more about engaging my whole person with the whole Christ of the Scriptures. It becomes less and less about my preferences, more about Him. It becomes less about what moves me, stirs me, encourages me, fills my cup, and more about purely delighting in Him. Think about that. As you meet with Him, and He meets with you by His Word and Spirit. It's easy for us to make corporate worship commonplace. We do it week in and week out. It occurs every seven days, but it's anything but common. It's extraordinary. It's amazing. It's a gift. We are getting to delight. When we're worshiping with God's people, we're getting to delight in just being with Him. And that's really what it's about, that we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him. That's the whole goal of your Christian walk, is not that you would just know more Bible, and know more about your faith, but that you would know more about him who loves you. But what about idolatry? How does idolatry mess this up? Idolatry teaches us to know and rely on anything other than God. And so if you don't come to God, if you don't come to worship for God, but for some other perceived benefit, and you don't get that benefit, or your life becomes difficult and hard, then you'll be inclined to run to other gods that make other promises, right? other idols. You see, what you revere, what you worship, you study, you learn about, you engage with, you get to know. Whatever that passion is, whatever that God is, you gain intense knowledge about what you worship. And so we're called, as Paul says, to be, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Ephesians 4.23, we're to be renewed in, in what we learn. And we know in Romans 1, Paul says that those who are idolaters become futile in their thinking. And the way that we think 
become. We become brainwashed, in a sense. Whatever is gripping our hearts. So ask yourself this morning, what idols are are competing for your headspace? What idols are are, are really engaged with your mind on a a day-in, day-out basis? What, What is ruling over what you're thinking about every day? Whether it be entertainment, or politics, or money, or your job, what is it? that is grabbing hold of your your head and your heart and your hands. We need to be aware of what those idols can do and and rob us of of God. Second idea is that Jesus communes with sinners. Jesus communes with sinners. Where I'm getting this is in the second half of verse 20. So that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. There we get that language of being in Christ. This, this, uh, the doctrine of, of union with Christ, that we are in Him. That Jesus communes with sinners. The great question over the entire Bible, if you really want to know what, what the big question to ask of your Bible, is from Gen- Genesis 3 on, the question becomes, how can a holy and perfect and righteous God dwell in the midst of a sinful people. That really explains the entire Bible from Genesis 3 on. How does a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? How does it happen? Well, being a just God, where there is sin, there must be punishment for rebellion against the Most High King. And throughout the Bible we read that God made a temporary way for his sinful people to dwell in their midst through sacrifice, right? Through and literal animal sacrifice. The blood of this innocent animal sacramentally put took on their sins. And those sacrifices pointed toward the coming final sacrifice that was truly sufficient to take away sins, which was the death of God's only son. And in verse 10 of chapter 4. First John says, in this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the wrath removal for our sins. So, and He did that through His death. And through His death that we're united to Him, we're united with Christ, that we are in Him. And so I'll repeat what I said earlier, you cannot be deeply committed to being a Christian, but not be deeply formed by Christ. When you're united to him in faith, he changes you. He transforms you. In chapter 3 of 1 John, verse 2, he reminds us of that truth and he says, Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. See that? We shall be like him. We shall be made like him because we're in union with him. You see, idolatry does the same thing. Idolatry unites us to anything other than God. And there's this idea in the Bible that you become what you worship. You become like what you worship. If you have your Bibles, flip over to Psalm 115. If you're looking for the Psalms, it should be in the middle of your Bible. And we'll go to chapter Psalm 115. We'll start reading in verse, verse uh, 4. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. 
They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, they, and they do not make a sound in their throat. See what he's talking about is the idols that we make. Right? Wooden idols, whatever we worship, it's an object, it's a created thing. It, and it, doesn't, it doesn't have any uh, capacity to do anything. And look at verse 8. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. So it's the idol maker and it's the idol truster that becomes like that idol, that where you lose the ability to hear, you lose the ability to speak or smell or feel. You become like what you worship. And that's true for whatever we tether ourselves to by faith. If you worship money, it's all you'll think about. And it'll captivate your soul. It'll capture you. And it'll ruin everything around you because those things will be getting in the way of your idol. G.K. Beale writes, You resemble what you revere. You resemble what you revere either for ruin or restoration. Either for ruin or restoration. In chapter 2 of 1, going back to 1 John, chapter 2, verse 15, he already he warned us of this. The closest thing to keep yourself from idols is chapter 2, verse 15, where he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Because what you worship, you will become like and you will serve. In Romans 1.25, Paul says that those who bow down to idols worshipped and served the creature. The creature and not the creator. You'll end up serving and becoming like a slave to whatever that idol is. So again, what are you, what are you uniting yourself to? Don't let that threaten your unity in Christ. The third idea is that Jesus reveals himself to the world. Look at the last half of verse 20. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So the question that we need to ask ourselves is, do we believe that it's all true? Do you believe that this, in the Bible that this is all true? And that what it says is true and that, that it's not a fairy tale? He is true. That statement, he is true, is repeated three times in one verse, in verse 20. He, what, is, what is John trying to tell us? That this is all true. That Christ is true. Believe in him. And friends, we live in a world right now where all truth is becoming relative. Right? You have your truth. I have my truth. Uh, we can coexist. And um, you know what? We'll just make a way forward. And you can see where that ends up in a culture of confusion if you do not have any ultimate truths, you, didn't, you just have relative truths and you live in a world of confusion where people are confused about everything. But we have ultimate truth. That Jesus is true. One uh, commentator, Colin Cruz, says, to say that, there, that Jesus Christ is the true God is striking. There's no other statement like it in 1 John, though there is such a statement in the fourth gospel where he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
But supporting such an interpretation is the fact that Jesus Christ is the closest antecedent for he in the context. So going back to verse 20, he is the true God. That's referring to Jesus. The most, probably one of the most clear statements of Jesus' divinity in Scripture. For here the full identity of Jesus with God is recognized without reserve. This seems to occur intentionally at the end of the letter, at the climax of the triumphant expression of faith. This week, I, I went on a little bit of a rabbit trail on, on Elvis, Elvis Presley. And um, you know how it happens. You find document YouTube, right? It's a great way to go down rabbit trails. And I um, started listening. I introduced him to our kids, and they you know, heard some, you know, You Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog and some other great songs. But in his later life, I didn't know this, but he was known to wear three necklaces around his neck. And he, he wore the cross, he wore the Star of David, and the Hebrew letters for life, Kai. And when asked why, he responded, why miss heaven on a technicality? Why miss heaven on a technicality, right? He wanted, he wanted to make sure he was covered. He had all the religions uh, in place. And, and w- when I heard that, it really reminded me of, of Acts chapter 17 when Paul goes to the Areopagus in Athens and he meets all the religious teachers of the various idols and, and gods and he sees that they have a statue to all the major gods, you know, Zeus and Mars and, and, and just all of them. And, and then he sees one where the inscription reads, to an unknown God. To an unknown God. And they would do that because, right, they didn't want to miss heaven on a technicality. They wanted to make sure they didn't leave any God out. They had all the gods. They didn't want to anger this, this unknown God if they perhaps forgot a God. And he says this to the crowd there. This is, what, this is what he preaches. He says, What you therefore worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, that the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said. For we indeed are his offspring. And then he says this. This I'm sure he's he's got their attention now. Right, he's gripping their attention. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What he's telling the Athenians there is, this is the truth that Jesus is the one you should worship, that all these are all false gods, and that he raised him from the dead in public so that everybody could see and testify that it happened, and you should repent and believe in him. So I believe if Jesus had a conversation with Elvis, he would say, Elvis, repent. Elvis, repent and believe. You can't, it's not about a technicality, it's Jesus is the only one. He is the true God. You must enter in the narrow gate. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones had a wonderful illustrations of this truth. He likened Jesus to a, a door 
to a turnstile at a stadium. If you can imagine going into a, a sporting event, you have this crowd of people, right, all filing into this small space to enter into the stadium, and you have this turnstile that you have to go through, and it's one by one, right? You can't jump over, you can't go in any, any, any other way. A huge crowd of people, but one by one, you have to enter into the stadium. Jason Halopoulos says that Jesus said, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Here lies an ironclad guarantee. The door to eternal life is not locked. It is not even closed. It is wide open for all who would dare to come. That is the beauty of the gospel, that God opens the door of salvation for any who will believe to enter in. Yet, one must go through the door. You have to go through the door. You have to go through Christ. That he is, as we read in our passage, eternal life. He is the true God and eternal life. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And yet here we come to the very last verse of 1 John. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. There's a warning still that we're to keep ourselves, that we're to be aware of our own hearts that idolatry will rob us of that truth of Jesus. He'll conceal Jesus from our eyes. Because with idolatry, the only truth is what the idol can offer you. Right? The, your whole world becomes surrounded about, what, what can this idol give me? To understand the sins you struggle with, ask yourself, what am I worshiping besides God? What am I looking to give me identity, meaning, safety, security. We all have sins we struggle with. But have you asked that question that gets underneath the sin? What am I trusting in really? What am I worshiping? Ray Ortland um, said this once, that Satan has a file on each one of us. So just imagine this. Satan has a file on each one of us. And in that file, uh, it lists out all the things Satan has to do to make you fall. He knows it all. He knows the exact place, the exact time, the things to do to make you fall and trip up and commit some egregious sin. He knows exactly what to do. And so what do we do? How do we respond to that? How do you prepare yourself? Well, we should know ourselves. That's the first thing. We should understand what is in that file. Do you know what it is that will trip you up? Do you know what idols it is that clings to your heart? Know the file. Try to learn that and know what Satan knows because he's studying. he is studying. He is trying to get us to fall and shipwreck our lives. And then, Ray Ordland says this as well, you need to have someone to help you. You, need to, you can't do this alone. Where you live, in your town, you need to have someone who loves you who knows you and isn't impressed by you. Who knows you and loves you and is not impressed by you and will tell you what you need to hear and will be frank with you when they see sin and call you out. Do you have a person like that to help you in that area? Because here's the truth. Some of you will fall bad. Uh, without God's grace, I will fall bad. And I will not finish well. Many Christians today are not finishing well. 
And we're not passing the faith on to, to our brothers and sisters and to our children very well. We're falling from grace. And we're wrecking our lives. And without God's grace, we will all land there. And in that moment, Satan will only win if he tells you and you believe that God's grace isn't going to reach you there. That God's grace isn't enough for that sin you committed. That it's not going to save you. That God can't do anything. You're lost. You're abandoned. That's where Satan wants to really win. That's when he'll win the battle. And that's when we must remind ourselves that there is grace for the idol worshiper. The shipwrecked faith lands safely in the harbor of Christ's love. That God's grace is abundant. That it never runs dry. That it never, uh, it never is empty. God's love for His people knows no limit. There's no shortage of God's grace. And also, it's continual. That you're going to need God's grace every day of your life. Every moment of your life. You're going to continually go back to the means of grace, continually go back to the cross to confess and to repent and find grace and assurance of your salvation. And that's why we take the Lord's Supper, that the Lord's Supper is a testament to the fact that we need this continual grace, that we need continual reminders of forgiveness and continual outpourings of the Holy Spirit. Merciful Father, we we thank you so much for your love for us, which we do not deserve. We thank you for feeding us, and allowing us to taste of your goodness and reminder of your grace. Would you be with us now as we go forth, lifting us up, encouraging us, strengthening us in in the faith as we look to the cross yet again for the sufficiency of your finished work, Jesus. Strengthen us, Father, as a church as well, and give us unity through the blood of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.